Hello and welcome to the National Secular Society podcast. I'm Emma Park and this week I'll be talking to Stephen Evans, CEO of the Society, Chris Sloggett, Communications Officer and Megan Manson, Campaigns Officer. We'll be discussing two related issues of real importance to civil society today. One is the controversial definition of Islamophobia that it was proposed in November last year by the all-party parliamentary group on British Muslims. We'll be looking at why the National Secular Society and other organisations have serious concerns with this definition. We will also discuss another issue on which the NSS has long been campaigning, infant male circumcision. As we will see, the treatment of this by some religious authorities also raises wider concerns about freedom of speech. But first, I will look briefly at the modern place of the right to free speech in the UK and why it is, in fact, inseparable from the right to freedom of religion or belief. I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. This phrase is often attributed to Voltaire, but was in fact coined by his English biographer, Evelyn Beatrice Hall, in 1906. Since then, however, it has been cited again and again as a phrase that encapsulates a certain ideal of a liberal democratic society. This is the attitude that freedom of speech is so important that even opponents who disapprove of each other's views, or indeed are offended by them, will risk their lives to defend each other's right to express them. In the last century, freedom of speech, along with freedom of religion or belief, have been two of the crucial rights regularly suppressed by totalitarian regimes, whether communist, fascist or theocratic. It was for such rights as these that, as we are taught at school, so many soldiers in World War II gave their lives. In fact, the human right to freedom of expression and to freedom of religion or belief go hand in hand. In a liberal democratic society, people should surely be able to follow the dictates of their own conscience and at the same time freely to criticise their own religious beliefs and practices and other people's. That is the theory. In recent years, however, there seems to have been a worrying trend in the UK towards attempting to suppress individuals' exercise of free speech, especially when this is directed towards criticising religious beliefs and practices. One example of this is the definition of Islamophobia proposed in a report last November by the APPG on British Muslims. I'm joined now by Stephen Evans and Chris Sloggett to discuss this definition of Islamophobia and its problems. Stephen, Hello. Hello. Could you first explain what the APPG on British Muslims proposes as a definition of Islamophobia? Yeah, so the definition being proposed by the APPG states, Islamophobia is rooted in racism and is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. So quite a broad, sweeping and somewhat vague definition, I would suggest. Okay, and this definition has so far been adopted by the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, Plaid Cymru, the Mayor of London and all five political parties in Scotland. However, it has received widespread criticism, both about the wording of the proposed definition, the purpose behind it and the approach which the APPG took to reaching it. Stephen, let's start with the definition itself. What is wrong with this definition? Well, like I said, it's very broad uh, in the first place, but I would also question, in the first instance, the need for a definition at all. Um, I don't think any convincing case has been made that the current provisions of the law are insufficient to deal with discrimination against or violence directed towards Muslims. Um, so discrimination against all individuals on the basis of their religion alongside other protected characteristics 
um, is rightly uh, already enshrined in legislation through the Equality Act. I also think the adoption of this definition risks giving an impression to other religion and belief groups that Muslims in Britain enjoy some sort of special uh, protections denied to others in that prejudice directed towards them is being singled out and treated differently. And I worry that this could lead to some sort of arms race of competitive, uh, competitive grievance. Um, I, also, I, I noticed the, uh, the Bishop of Truro in his recent Religious Freedom Review for the government is actually now suggesting that we name the phenomenon of Christian discrimination and persecution, which looks a lot to me like a prelude to uh, some sort of Christianophobia definition um, being brought forward soon. Um, so I'm very uneasy with us going down this route, which I think feeds into the harmful politics of identity. It encourages people to identify first and foremost by their religion, which I think leads to the sort of separatism and division uh, that as secularists we should be against. So you've identified several arguments against having a definition of this phenomenon at all. But what about the actual definition of Islamophobia presented by the APPG? Sure. Well, as I said, the definition itself calls Islamophobia a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness. Um, now, the term expressions of Muslimness, I think, is very vague. Uh, it could really mean any Islamic practice, uh, almost anything that a Muslim does. Uh, so the wearing of uh, head or face coverings is certainly an expression of Muslimness. Uh, Non-stun slaughter is, is an expression of Muslimness. But of course, you know, we should as a society be free to discuss and debate these issues without fear of being branded racist or Islamophobic. So I suppose the main problem with the definition is that it doesn't really differentiate between the criticizing of religious beliefs or practices and acts of prejudice against individuals. So the definition as it stands, I think, stands to uh, chill free speech. And it will undoubtedly, I think, be used to shut down important conversations that a healthy society needs to have. And anything that silences legitimate criticism of Islam won't tackle anti-Muslim bigotry. Uh, it will create a grievance, I think. It will aggravate community tensions. So it could, in fact, be counterproductive. So wanting to tackle anti-Muslim hatred is an absolutely understandable impulse. And we should all be concerned by evidence of increasing anti-Muslim discrimination and, and, and rhetoric. But any definition that can be used to shield Islamic beliefs and even extremists from criticism clearly, for me, isn't fit for purpose and it could actually do more harm than good. Now, that, that is um, discussing the definition proposed by the APPG. But is there something with this very word itself, Islamophobia? It almost sounds like a mental condition like acrophobia. Yes, uh, it's always been a contentious concept in that it conflates scrutiny and criticism of Islam, uh, which is, of course, a powerful world religion, uh, with hatred of Muslims. And clearly, these are two very different things. It's possible to be critical of Islam uh, or aspects of Islam without being in any way bigoted towards Muslims. Um, so, you know, the concept of Islamophobia makes criticism of a religion akin to racism. So anyone who speaks out against anything to do with Islam always runs the risk of being branded racist, and few people are able and prepared to defend themselves against such allegations. So the easiest thing to do is just keep quiet. And so I think the concept of Islamophobia has a real self-censoring effect, which is absolutely toxic to free expression, and all the good things that free speech brings for a society. Um, so it's quite a pernicious concept, and I think my fear is if the APPG get their way, uh, it's a concept that will become further and more deeply embedded in our political lexicon uh, and institutions, 
which I think will have a real chilling effect on free speech. Uh, the term anti-Muslim hate is a much more precise word, um, a much more precise term, and it does the job nicely to address a very real and rising problem. So there's a difference um, then between um, hating Muslim people and criticising the religion and the concepts. Absolutely, of course. The process by which the APPG operated to reach its definition has also been criticised. What are the National Secular Society's concerns about the process? Well, let's just say I, I think they very much began with the end in mind. Uh, we certainly engaged with the APPG at a very early stage with a view to meeting them, uh, to have discussions, but this wasn't particularly welcomed. Uh, dissenting voices who took part in their consultation, uh, such as ourselves, such as uh, Southall Black Sisters, uh, Rami Hassan, uh, they were just dismissed. And despite claims to have consulted the Muslim community, no Ahmadiyya groups appear to have contributed to the consultation at all. Um, so for me, it's really concerning how local authorities and political parties have adopted this definition without any real scrutiny or proper consideration of what I think are very uh, negative consequences to freedom of expression. And I just hope the government's own consideration of this matter will draw on a, a wider range of opinions and hopefully conclude that pushing any concept of Islamophobia isn't a particularly helpful way of addressing the prejudice that Muslims face. Thank you, Stephen. And talking about a wider range of views on this topic, detailed analysis of, of the definition and its flaws have been collected in a booklet entitled Islamophobia, an Anthology of Concerns. This booklet was put together by the independent think tank Civitas. You can find a link to it on the podcast page. Chris, turning to you, you were responsible for the NSS's contribution to this booklet. Could you explain what your argument was there? Yes, so hello. Um, so we highlighted some specific problems with the definition. Um, the use of the word Islamophobia, which Stephen's obviously talked about at length there. Uh, the wording of the top line in particular, which again, we've already heard about. And um, there was also the pr proposal to have five tests to determine whether criticism of Islam is bigoted or not. Um, those are some of the sort of most significant problems we identified. Um, but our concern really is that the, uh, the definition takes the wrong approach. So anti-Muslim violence, harassment and discrimination are significant problems. And uh, I mean, the definition was published last November. And since then, of course, there's been the atrocity in Christchurch, which has reminded us of that in absolutely no uncertain terms. Um, but th this definition looks to limit discussion and debate as a means to combat bigotry. And this is part of a, a sort of wider approach which seeks to patronise anti-Muslim bigotry away. So in the essay, for example, we highlighted the case of Justice Haddon Cave. Um, last year, this Justice Haddon Cave, he was a judge who uh, told the Parsons Green bomber that Islam was a religion of peace and told him he'd have time to study the Quran in prison. Um, this was really a very obvious violation of the separation of religion and the judiciary. Um, judges should not be going about making theocratic proclamations. We raised this with judicial watchdogs, but our complaints were dismissed out of hand. And uh, later on, a few weeks later, the judge was making similar comments to another terrorist. The point here that, that, that I suppose you need to make is that our whole approach to the problem of anti-Muslim bigotry is to conflate bigotry with criticism of Islam and to discourage debate, to chill free speech, what we should be doing is going in the opposite direction. Open debate, including on tricky subjects, 
is the best response to bigotry. Uh, bigotry thrives on ignorance, shutting down debates fuels ignorance, um, and it also often fuels resentment because treating people as members of distinct groups defined by religion is not sensible. I think, I mean, Stephen touched on some of that already. Um, I suppose what I'd summarise by saying is that anti-Muslim crimes need to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Anti-Muslim attitudes and discrimination must be challenged, but it is not sensible for us to shut down free expression on Islam. Who else contributed to this booklet? Uh, so a variety of campaigners um, contributed to the booklet, and that includes several of our honorary associates, uh, so high-profile NSS supporters, uh, Pragna Patel of uh, the group South or Black Sisters, uh, the ex-Muslim secularist activist Mariam Namazi, and the human rights campaigner Peter Tatchell were among them. Uh, but there are also some uh, activists whose agendas are very different to our own uh, and who agree that this definition poses a threat to free freedom of expression. So we tend to disagree with uh, groups like Christian Concern, for example, uh, but we're on the same side on this one. So altogether, fearless but responsible free speech on these topics benefits society as a whole. Stephen and Chris, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Sloggett is still with me, and I'm now joined by Megan Manson for the second part of our discussion. Megan, hello. Hi. Hello. We now move on to two cases involving male infant circumcision, an issue against which the NSS has long been campaigning. The second of these issues also raises questions about free speech and the attempt by religious authorities to suppress it. But the first of these cases involved the very lenient treatment of a Nigerian Christian woman, uh, Martina Obi Uzom, who was convicted in the inner London Crown Court for having a baby boy circumcised against the will of his mother. The case was widely reported in the papers. Megan, you have been working on this case. Can you explain what happened? Well, this was... Um Personally, I found this a very shocking story indeed. Um, what we know from the reports is that Martina Obi Uzom, who's a 70-year-old pharmacist, um, had an 11-month-old baby entrusted to her care while the baby's parents went away for the weekend. And during that weekend, um, Obi Uzom took the baby to London to be circumcised in accordance with her own Nigerian Christian beliefs. She knew the baby's mother did not want her baby circumcised. So what she did is she posed as the child's mother and recruited a man to pose as his father and she convinced a, a Jewish moyle, a circumciser, to perform the procedure. What's the NSS's objection to the way the case was handled by the judge, her honour judge Freya Newbury? Well, we were really struck by the leniency of the sentence. So the facts are that Obiuzon took a defenceless baby that had been entrusted to her care. She took the baby to a man who held him down, took up a knife and did painful and irreversible injury to the most intimate part of his body. Had the baby been an adult, this would have been treated as an extremely serious, um, possibly even a sexual assault. Um, a custodial sentence uh, would have been the inevitable. Would have been inevitable for the perpetrator, I think. But in this case, Obiuzom, she isn't going to jail. She was given a suspended sentence of fourteen months, and she was also ordered to pay uh, one thousand five hundred in court in costs, and then a one hundred and forty pound victim surcharge. 
So £140 seems like a really small amount of compensation for amputating a part of a person's genitals without consent or without medical need. And we can compare this to um, a case in August where a man was awarded £20,000 for being circumcised by mistake at Leicester General Hospital. And um, you can also compare this to um, prosecutions for female genital mutilation or FGM. So in March, um, a Ugandan woman was sentenced to 11 years in jail uh, for cutting her three-year-old daughter's genitals. And the judge at that time said that what she'd done was a barbaric and sickening child abuse. Um, but because in the case of um, Obiuzon, the child involved was male and not female, uh, the court didn't seem to recognise the cutting of his genitals as such a serious crime. And on top of that, we were concerned for the reasons the judge had given for this leniency. So uh, Judge Freya Newbury said that she accepted that Obiozon's intention wasn't to harm the child and that she was, and I quote, of impeccable character. And she also said she was a professional person and highly qualified. And uh, she also said that um, Obiozon's Christian belief in circumcision had great cultural and religious significance. Um, we haven't been able to look at the full sentencing remarks yet, but on its own, this statement seems to suggest that because Obiuzon's motivation was religious, this was almost considered a, a mitigating circumstance. What about the argument that the court, when it was deciding on its sentence, um, was right to take into account Ms. Obiuzon's otherwise good behaviour and her contribution to society? Well, that is true that judges do need to take that maybe into consideration, but I think in this case, the judge went far too far and used quite irrelevant details for mitigating circumstances. And in some cases, I think those details implicate Obiuzon uh, even further. So for example, the judge mentioned that she's a highly qualified professional person, and that's true. She's the director of a pharmacist. But surely that means that her high level of education, which would involve specialist knowledge in healthcare, puts her in a better position to understand the harms and the risks of circumcision than the average person. And that's before we consider the ethics surrounding uh, parental and patient consent. And what's more, as a pharmacist, she was in a position of trust when it comes to healthcare issues, and she severely breached that trust. So we're still quite keen to see the full sentencing remarks, and we've made inquiries to the court about this. And we've also asked the General Pharmaceutical Council if they are taking any action against Obiozom, and we're waiting there for their response now. On the subject of the ethics, what does the NHS say the court should do to protect a child's right to bodily integrity? Well, the courts need to make it clear that religion can never be an excuse uh, for committing painful and permanent injury on a non-consenting child's genitals uh, without medical need. Um, in the two convictions that we've seen for FGM in the UK, I think that's fairly clear that religious beliefs have not entitled the perpetrators to a lighter sentence. But the, the overall problem doesn't really lie in the courts, it lies in how the law itself treats infant male circumcision. So although there is in fact nothing in law that permits it, there's nothing that prohibits it either. The specific prohibition on FGM applies exclusively to female genitals. And because people in this country have been circumcising babies on religious grounds for so long, it's sort of become legal by default. And this is what really needs to change. Biological sex shouldn't be what determines whether or not a person can cut a child's genitals. It should be 
whether or not there is a genuine medical need, or in the case where it isn't medical, whether or not that person who's actually undergoing this procedure can and does consent to it. So we need to extend the current protections that exist for girls to boys. Now, Megan, you mentioned that the judge took into account that the fact that circumcision might be a vital part of some cultures, such as perhaps Nigerian Christianity or Orthodox Judaism. Chris, this issue was touched on in a speech given by the chief rabbi, Ephraim Mervis, at an international interfaith conference in Madrid. What was the argument that chief rabbi Mervis made there? Yes, so the, the chief rabbi uh, went on a, a sort of polite lament um, about the fact that secularist and humanist campaigners were raising points he didn't like. Um, in particular, he defended faith schools and ritual infant circumcision. Uh, so he argued that campaigns against these infringed on Jewish people's rights. So he criticised the NSS by name um, because we work to end unnecessary infant circumcision. Um, and he accused secularists and humanists of attempting to impose humanism on society. Uh, and he claimed this version of humanism, with a capital H, um, was intolerant. Uh, much of his argument was an age-old version of the argument that I should be able to live my way and you live your way. Uh, now, there's some obvious merit in that, uh, but not when it means allowing abuse to be perpetuated or the state funding a particular view of religion. So, going on from that in more detail, what are the NSS's main objections to um, Chief Rabbi Mervis's line of argument? Well, his arguments in defence of faith schools and circumcision were flawed. Um, so he argued that campaigning against faith schools meant campaigning against, and this is a quote, my freedom to raise my children in accordance with the tenets of my faith. Um, now, that's only true if you think that that freedom extends to expecting the state, funded by taxpayers from all religious backgrounds and none, to provide support for those schools, to promote a particular view of religion. Um, secularist campaigners don't want to stop people taking uh, children to the synagogue, mosque or church, but the, the implication of what the rabbi said would be that we do. Um, he didn't engage with reasonable criticisms of faith schools or circumcision, um, but our real concern was, and I think, yeah, I think the, the most concerning thing was that he effectively asked groups like us to shut up. Um, he asked us to stop campaigning against our freedom to practice our faith. That's a, that's a quote from the chief rabbi, our freedom to practice our faith. Now, if groups like us stopped campaigning against the freedom to practice faith, we'd never work to highlight or stop abusive practices. So he also claimed secularism and humanism were intolerant. Now, religious groups often do this to shut down debate when they can't win the argument. Um, and he claimed that we were trying to impose humanism. Well, this is a mischaracterization of efforts just to promote one law for all. It's not one worldview for all, it's one, one law for all. Um, but yeah, the chief rabbi has mischaracterized that. Um, he, he used a lot of diplomatic pleasantries, there was a lot of pleases in particular, um, but this shouldn't blind us to the fact that this is an attitude that poses a threat to values which citizens of enlightened society should hold dear. Uh, human flourishing has long depended on people being willing to defy religious groups' desire to silence debate. And the issue of circumcision and faith schools raises a further question, which is how far parents should have the right to raise their children according to their own beliefs. This is a knotty problem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you have the right to raise your children in line with your beliefs, but that right is not absolute. And it shouldn't extend to a right to expect the state to provide support 
for those beliefs, to promote them, or to segregate your children off from the rest of society. Um, and nor should it mean that the state, or indeed campaigners who you may disagree with, turn a blind eye to harmful practices which are conducted in the name of religion. Megan, what's your view on this? Well, it's interesting that often um, uh, religious groups will argue in favour of practices that we, um, that we oppose in the name of religious freedom, saying it's our religious freedom to do this. Um, but we're actually arguing for the same thing from a different way. We are arguing for religious freedom too, but we're looking from the child's point of view. So in the case of circumcision, we're looking at the child's right to not have religion imposed on them. We're saying that the child can choose whatever religion or belief they want later, but having somebody do something like that to your body so early on it basically takes away a lot of that choice from you. And to an extent, the same goes for faith schools as well. Um, if... Obviously, we, uh, we rely on, uh, on state education, most of us do, and when there is religion involved, when religion is being sort of imposed by a religion that is funded by the state, it is the case that you are ignoring the children's freedom to, um, to sort of come up with their own beliefs and to make their own decisions, and in many cases you are discriminating against children who don't have those beliefs. As our discussion has shown, there are no easy answers to the question of how to bring up children in a way which respects their parents' interest in them and their own right to flourish and make their own decisions. But it's very important that these issues should continue to be subject to responsible, dispassionate criticism. And that's what the NSS aims to do. Chris and Megan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was episode 15 of the National Secular Society podcast, hosted by Emma Park. If you like this podcast, you can find further episodes on the website, along with more information about the topics discussed at secularism.org.uk forward slash podcast. You'll also find there a list of forthcoming NSS events and information on how to join the society. Thanks for listening.